Amen. Thank you, Fred. Man, I love that that is our first value, that there is joy in Jesus above anything else this life has to offer. Ah, man. Good to be with you guys on a Sunday morning uh, after a beautiful weekend of 40 degrees. We spent a couple laps walking around our neighborhood. Um, And Casey, so Casey's usually here, but now you might see me point to the back uh, from time to time during the service. That is because she is in the back, Um, not because some metaphorical sense of going home. Anyway, um, we are making a turn in 1 Peter this morning, and and, and I just want to have a phrase that I think embodies this turn that is happening, because what we're going to see for the rest of the book is Peter is now challenging us to live out this new identity. He's been beating us over the head from chapters 1 to 2 about who we are in Jesus. You you heard this this passionate plea to find joy in Jesus. He's been beating us over the head with this call to find joy in Jesus. And now he's making a turn and saying, so live. Live this new identity in the midst of a needy and watching a watching world that's looking for this joy in Jesus. But if you've noticed, there's also some skepticism and hostility in the midst of this world that we live in. I don't know if you've heard of this equality act that's out lately. And it's revamping the idea of what civil rights is to include gender and sexuality. And hear me say, I don't want someone fired on behalf of their sexual preference. Don't hear me saying that. But in the sense of now seeing religious freedoms uh, challenged. Feels like what Peter's going to tell us now over the next few chapters is a very apt call to the world we live in. That is looking for hope and looking for joy. And Peter's going to say, we live in a way that reflects that. But here's the challenge. Because I feel like in my life there are two things that the culture has challenged me with in this journey of finding identity in Jesus and then living it out. Uh, There's a quote from a guy named Robert Mulholland that helps capture this challenge to my own growth. He says this, this process of becoming more like Jesus, this identity in Jesus, he says, it's a process of being conformed to the image of Christ for the sake of others. But it feels like there's two things that I'm confronted by in that journey of this new identity. One, I feel like I want things now. (laughs) Like when I go to a vending machine, I plug in B37 and now comes my Doritos, right? Why do I have to have this process of growing into more like the image of Christ? I want it now. When I drive through Burger King and I use my little app and I get my two Whoppers for six bucks, it's, it's like right now. Like right now, I need it now. This process of growing Seems like it's a lot longer than sometimes the way I or our culture pursues instant gratification. And then second, man, isn't it me that does the work? I mean, I'm the one that cracked the eggs and put it on the frying pan, right, this morning? Who did that? I did. Right? I did the work. And yet what it appears Peter is challenging us with, even now as we switch, there was a process of being conformed that is done in me, that, that supersedes some of the control that I love to exercise. 
And so now as we make this turn, even in living out this new identity, don't be confused on how, at least I think Peter is saying this process takes place. That there is a work, a supernatural work, a mystical work being done in the life of those that are finding joy in Jesus. And then it gets manifest to those around us. So here is the turn. You guys ready to make the turn in Peter? First Peter 2, 11 and 12, Peter is now shifting the conversation to how we now live. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Beloved, he's now turning, right? You can feel it, right? Just last week, he said, you were a chosen race, a royal priest, and all these nice flowery words to define who we are, and now he's turning his language to what? Sojourners and exiles. He's returning to that language he told us at the very beginning of the letter. Do I go through this life as a tourist, kind of snapping a couple photos along the way? Or do I see myself as now a resident who's just kind of making myself at home No, Peter's now trying to communicate as he enters into the rest of his letter, live as these pilgrims, not the guys that came on the Mayflower, but rather sojourners living in the conviction that you have another home. So here's where we're headed this morning. As citizens of heaven, in order to most effectively fulfill our God-designed purpose of encouraging people to find their joy in Jesus, we live as sojourners now. And he's going to give us two ideas on how we live as those sojourners. He's going to say we refuse to adopt certain practices of this life. And we live in a way that encourages even those who oppose us to see the beauty of God. You guys ready to dive in? I am so... Are we ready to dive in? Okay. Just Jen and I, I guess, over here. Just a couple of us. We're ready. Pray with me as we, as we get into the text. God, you're so good. Every week, every prayer, those are my words, God. We want to recognize and hallow your name and pray for your goodness to be increasingly manifest in our lives. We want to attribute that reality and that characteristic to you. And then we pray for our circumstances and our needs that you are meeting us exactly where we are. Whatever we brought in today, whatever circumstance we're bringing, we want to hear from you and the call you have on our lives to live a new identity in the midst of a needy and watching world that is looking for joy in you. Thank you, Jesus, for your glory. We always pray. Amen. Amen. So, first... What does it mean to live as sojourners and exiles? The first place he goes as he, make this, as he makes this turn, we refuse to adopt the evil values and customs of this world. Here's what he says. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh. To abstain from the passions of your flesh that attempt to murder you. They wage war against your soul. They attempt to destroy your soul. And I love, I love what Jesus is going to tell us here in Matthew. Because what is it about these things that are waging war on your soul? I think 
I think he's trying to say, if this new identity is true in you, you will wage war against these things in this life. Jesus says this about fruit, right? So every healthy tree bears fruit and good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by your fruits. I think what he's telling us here in verse 11, he's saying this is evidence of that new identity. That there is a transformation that is occurring, a process of becoming more like Jesus for the sake of the world. Hey man, I love my vending machine. I'd love that thing to just happen, right? That poof, suddenly I'm just perfect and I'm less angry. That suddenly I just wake up and I'm more patient. That just poof, suddenly I just love my wife like Christ loved the church and every single day she's going, David, I can't believe you can't love me any more than this. But instead, we wage war and we abstain from the passions of our flesh that wage war against the soul. So what are those? What essentially are those passions that are waging war? I think back up to verse 9 and 10, they're things that attempt to claim that they bring more significance and satisfaction than Jesus they attempt to say they bring a more marvelous light than the marvelous light that has transformed your life. These are things that attempt to say, I actually bring more satisfaction than Jesus. And so I don't think he's talking just about the passions of the flesh in sexual connotations. I think he actually has a broad idea of what that means. So what are those? What are those things that attempt to compete for the affections that are intended for God. What are those things? I th oh, man, Jacob. Thank you, Jacob. <laughs> J Jacob's here with me too. Thank you, Jen. <laughs> We're going to get to that one second, Jacob. The first one, feeling momentary pleasure no matter the cost. Man, those donuts and those cookies just look a little delicious today. Maybe if I just have one, my soul will be a little bit more satisfied. And that instant gratification, that instant need is filled. That momentary pleasure, no matter the cost. I think another thing that competes for your affections, Jacob, what is it? Man, the stuff of this life that matters the most. There's a picture, a story I heard from a guy named John Piper in his book, Desiring God, in his chapter about money. And he said, picture this. Picture a guy in an art gallery. He walks in with nothing into that art gallery. And then he says something, and he does something. Suppose someone passes empty-handed through the turnstile at a big city art museum and begins to take the pictures off the wall and then importantly carry them under his arm. You come up to him and say, what are you doing? And he answers, I'm becoming an art collector. <laughs> but they're not really yours, you say. And besides, they won't let you take any of them out of here. You'll have to go out just like you came in. But he answers again, sure they're mine. What are you, a moron? Don't you see them under my arm? <laughs> Sure, they're mine. 
I got them under my arm. People in the halls look at me as an important dealer. And I don't bother myself with the thought about leaving. Don't be a killjoy. What are the affections that are competing, that are intended for God? (laughs) The momentary pleasures of this life and the stuff that we just get inundated with. And and they might actually be a more long-term view. We we understand how savings work. (laughs) We understand if we save now, there's a better future tomorrow. If I work hard now, I'm going to get something I want later. So in this, they're not just momentary pleasures. They might be things that you're working very hard to accumulate but they still might compete and battle for the affections of your heart just the same. The third area that appears competes for our affections for God, don't you know how good I am? Don't you see just all the work that I've put in? And I begin working hard to attract that attention to say, oh, this is what life is about. Peter's challenging us. He says, abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul that seek to destroy momentary pleasures, but for an eternity apart from lasting significance. So, how? So, if if that's true, if these things are waging war against my soul, how might I actually abstain from these things? What, What might that look like? And, uh, and there's a dude named Thomas Chalmers. You guys ever heard of him? So, so he was a contemporary, I think, of Jonathan Edwards, if that name means anything to you guys. And, and so he, he had this uh, sermon he wrote called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Not explosive power, but expulsive power. And, and he talks about, so how do you actually... How's this process work? Because I don't just walk up to the vending machine, push A39, and out comes my Diet Coke, right? There's actually a process being done. How's that happen? Here's what Thomas Chalmers said. There are two ways in which a practical moralist may attempt to displace from the human heart its love of the world, either by a demonstration of the world's vanity so as that the heart shall prevail upon simply to withdraw its regards from an object that is not worthy of it. We're going to pull this apart in a second. You're like, man, who talks like that anymore? Dudes of the 1700s, that's who talk like that. One way is to attack the very thing you're trying to abstain from. Here's the second way. Or by setting forth another object, even God, as more worthy of its attachment. So that the heart shall be prevailed upon not to resign an old affection, which shall have nothing to succeed it, but to exchange an old affection for a new one. It it seems to me one way we attack sin, and I went, after I colored it blue, I went, we want to see it black, right? It's black as sin. One way in this way we abstain is we confront these things. Jesus tells us this in Matthew, right? For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? A sobering reality, Matthew 5. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, verse 30. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. That there is a way that we attack things in our life and confront them. And so I don't want to miss that, right? It's not either or. 
But sometimes what I think I heard you, what I hope you heard Sandy say is sometimes in that it becomes these rules and obedience is no longer freeing and instead just becomes another weight on our life that actually might be a sin we need to attack in itself of just a duty and an obligation and a weight that comes with rule following. Instead, what did you hear the other potential solution that Thomas Chalmers presented? It's not either or, right? Don't hear me say either or. But what's the other alternative Thomas Chalmers suggests? To replace that affection. He says this, by setting forth another object, even God is more worthy of its attachment so that the heart shall be prevailed upon, not to resign itself to an old affection, which shall have nothing to succeed it, but to exchange an old affection for a new one. That one is the way we abstain and fight this war against our soul that is waging against our soul is actually to begin to make God big and the things of this life become strangely dim because we are so enraptured with just how great God is. Peter's been challenging us with that reality of living this new identity. He told us this about our new identity. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope. How do you abstain from the passions of your flesh that wage war against your soul to continue to set your hope more fully? One of the classic illustrations for me that capture that. How do you get someone to build a boat? Now the staff knows, I am not a detail guy. I mean, they'd probably walk me through, well, David, you got step one is this. Does anybody else hate setting up Ikea furniture? Anybody else? So a little secret into our life, Casey builds, and you're probably going to just look at me a little sideways now like, David, you don't do that in your home? I hate setting up Ikea furniture. Step one, find those little things that are all scattered all over the place. Step two, <laughs> assemble, lay the pieces out, drives me nuts. But how might you inspire me to build Ikea furniture? Hey, David, you know that ratty dresser your kids have? There's an opportunity for them to have a lot much more organized place to put their stuff. You know, your kids really want to play house right now. If you build them this playhouse, they're going to have an, an incredible place to enjoy playing in. When we set our hope on what's to come, it, it ought to inspire a life change of the things that are no longer pointing us in that direction. We want to make those things small. He says this, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Setting your hope, longing for the word that's going to change and transform our life as we set our hope to a new affection. So you make known to me one more, one more. I'm just making this case, right? One more for me. Psalm 1611, David says this. You make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy at your right hand. There are pleasures forevermore. What if life offered you 98% pleasure in this life and zero in the next? Do you take it? 
Jesus says, at my right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Peter is saying, live this new identity and abstain from the passions that wage war against your soul. So living as sojourners means one, we refuse to adopt these practices, understanding that it is waging war and we are living out this new identity. And two, we choose to live in ways that encourage even those who oppose us to see the beauty of God. Now, now we could have, hypothetically, in some cosmos, we could have jumped straight and we could have done verse 11 all the way up to about, oh, verse 25, I think. Let's see. Maybe even further than that. But over the next three sections, Peter is going to develop three ways where even in the midst of opposition, we live out this life as sojourners. The first one he's going to go to is the government in verse 3 to 17. He said, if you believe there are somehow unjust or contrary views in leadership, we actually live our lives differently. What about in the home? Peter addresses the home with husbands and wives, and then he addresses servants and masters. What about in the workplace? We choose to live in ways that encourage even those who oppose us to see the beauty of God. He's going to develop more practical specifics over the next few weeks. But he starts here. We live in a way that encourages those who even oppose us. We live in a way that helps them see the glory of God. Have you ever pictured yourself in a movie? So you probably can't see that. So this was, this was Casey's bridal shower. And so someone took different photos <coughs> and, uh, and superimposed our faces onto... You guys make these things, by the way? Just gems, right? Just compiling all your pictures into like one little spot. Just a gem. You can look back and go, oh yeah, that did happen. So superimposed our faces. Count them on a crystal is one of my favorites. And so do you ever picture yourself, if you pictured yourself in a movie, who, well, one, who would play you? That's one question. But who would be the main character? If you, if you starred in a movie, someone, if, you, if your life was a movie, who, who would be the main character? And you might be thinking, oh, David, duh, me! And to be played by like, maybe I'm dating myself, Tom Cruise. To be, to be played by some just radical, just rock star of an action figure. So if your life was a movie, who would be the main character? And, and, and our temptation is, I would imagine, to answer us. And so here would be our challenge. That at the end of the movie... <laughs> After the show had finished and the lights went down and it was over, what happens next? It, it, it's over. It's done. The, the movie's done. But Peter is now encouraging us in this turn. He's saying who actually becomes the star of the movie? It's actually when we increasingly see Jesus. Because if we're the star, all the questions we begin asking revolve around me. Huh, do I feel good today? Did I get what I want today? Did, did I meet the girl or guy? Did I get to have this great adventure? And, and it begins to revolve around me. 
rather than what Peter is going to tell us, seeing Jesus as the main character. And the questions begin to reflect Did he receive glory today? Was he recognized in my actions today? Here's what Peter says. And maybe this is my commentary on it. When we actually make that turn on who the main character is, there is no bad news in the kingdom. If we begin to see everything as an opportunity that points back to Jesus, there is no bad news in the kingdom believing that Jesus is getting glory regardless of the circumstance. Come on. Do you guys love babies? You see a baby walk in and all of a sudden we just got to look at the baby, right? Is that okay? (laughs) Sorry. You guys know this about me already. You guys at home, you guys know this about me. It's like a squirrel, right? Something runs across the stage and you got to take notice. And then you're reeling to get back. And some of you in your heads are going, David, just stick to the script, David. There's no bad news in the kingdom. If we begin to see Jesus as the main character. But in my life, if I'm the main character, well, that kind of was a stinky circumstance. Well, that didn't go my way. But Peter is now changing the narrative and saying, when they speak against you, believe that it's actually going to bring glory to God in your good deeds. Here's what he says in the text. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So let's walk through. What does it mean to live as sojourners Choosing to live in a way that encourages those who oppose us to see the beauty, the beauty of God. Here's what he says. I think he's going to say, so live a beautiful life. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. And you're going, David, where do you get beauty out of that? Where did you get beauty out of that phrase? So that that word honorable could actually be translated beautiful. But for me, when I hear honorable, I'll tell you what first came to my mind when I was thinking through this. You know, there's an honorable job that a toilet plays when you flush the toilet and out goes everything in there, right? That is a very honorable thing. It fulfills the function for which it was designed, And then you get that beautiful Sloan written on there, and you're thinking, oh, this is so honorable. Beauty isn't the word that comes to my mind. But he's saying beautiful. Thank you for that. So sometimes the jokes are just for me. Thank you for that. You guys are thinking, sometimes in my, anyway. So keep your conduct among the Gentiles beautiful. That your life actually reflects a beautiful aroma in the way you live out these good deeds. That there's a beauty and attraction to the way you live. And then he continues. But, but you might think, live in a beautiful way so that others go, wow, you live such a good life. I want that life. Instead, he turns it. And he says, If you live this beautiful life that anchors your life in this new identity, 
Expect to be slandered just as Jesus was slandered. Here's what he says. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. And by Gentiles, he's not meaning, he's using that broader to say those that have yet to treasure Jesus. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, beautiful, so that when they speak against you, dot, 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 as evildoers. But David, I, I, thought, I thought if I live in a way that reflects positivity, there's an attraction to it. He says, there's going to be slander coming your way if you actually stand and live in a way that reflects some of these values. We heard this from, from, uh, from Brian a few weeks ago. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen impression. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you, believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected. Why does he tell us this just a few verses prior? I think he's trying to set, set us up for where he's headed. This stone that was rejected, just as Jesus reje was rejected, don't expect anything different in the way you live. Now that's different than if you're just a jerk, right? If you're just a jerk and someone rejects you for being a jerk, that's your bad, right? But he's saying something different. If you live a beautiful life that reflects certain values, just expect that there is slander. Expect to be slandered just as Jesus was slandered. When I think of the equality act coming up, I, I, I just assume there, there, is a, there is a stance on human sexuality in the image of God that I advocate for. Pro-life is a significant issue. And yet there could be slander that is accompanied with a pro-life position. Not being a jerk about it, but potentially slander. Uh, a few months ago on Facebook, <laughs> someone posted something about Hillcrest. And I'm like, oh, 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 let's find out what someone's saying about Hillcrest. Hillcrest takes a much more conservative position on human sexuality. You shouldn't go there, paraphrasing. <laughs> now, I haven't had the opportunity to follow up, but in the days ahead, that, that feels like a great opportunity. Is that something you respond to or you actually trust that God's doing a work and we continue to stand on certain convictions? Expect to be slandered just as Jesus was slandered. And Jesus' suffering under injustice saved us so extend that salvation to others. Here's what he says. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you of evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. <laughs> that there is this salvation that is being extended by the way you live. And so I think of this. He doesn't say, by the way, you post on Instagram and Twitter, right? That wasn't the comment he made. He didn't say they're going to see your good deeds in the way you post. There feels like there's two issues that, that have been at the forefront of my mind recently, primarily human sexuality and racism. Rather than us railing against a certain perspective, what might it actually look like for us to invite someone who shares a different view on those issues into our home. Rather than saying, we don't see it that way, what might it actually look like to extend salvation and invite someone into your home? 
who might not share your perspective on all those issues and actually be an embodiment of those convictions we claim to have. And then he says this, I love, just back to what Jacob said. I'll tell you, in a materialistic world, I'm struck by these ideas as well. What do good deeds look like? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on this earth where moths and rust destroy, where thieves break and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven when neither moth or rust destroy. Thieves do not break and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be off also. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pressed in the, in the midst of a materialistic world. Why do we fast? It's an attempt to say, God, you're better than food. <laughs> Why do we give? <laughs> Why do we have for God boxes? It's our attempt to try and reflect that God, you're actually the sustainer in my finances. What does it look like for us to give generously and to invite people in our homes that might not share the same perspective? And then here's the last idea that I think is quite interesting to me because you go, it's not the way we use language. Peter, what are you trying to tell us? But we live a beautiful life, expect to be slandered and extend this salvation to others. And then he actually gives us this method that I think he's going to develop for the rest of the book. He's going to give us this a most effective evangelistic strategy. Here's what he says. So keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What in the world does that mean? <laughs> Is it like, well, you know, just... Suck it up in this life because there's coming a day where Jesus will return. I, I think that's true, right? There is a day where we believe he's returning. But why does Peter tell us this now? What is he trying to communicate to us? And I, I feel like there's two potential answers. And I'm going to advocate for one of them that feels like it brings more inspiration to the day-to-day. Because -day. one could be there is going to be vindication. You won't be vindicated in this life, but there is a day coming where this will happen. So just hang on. It's coming. But for me, it appears to be more this one. Because there's no definite article in the Greek. It doesn't say the day of visitation, which would lead to the day. It's a day of visitation. And so we see elsewhere where what it means to be visited is the Holy Spirit shows up in someone's life and does a work because of the good deeds that you're doing in the midst of challenges. Here's what, here's what Luke says later. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. There was a moment in time where God visited and did a radical work in someone's life. Acts 15, Peter. Peter has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. What does it mean for a day of visitation? Or in a mystical, profound way, because of your actions in the way we live day to day. Why, why should I live this way? Because in a radical way, the Holy Spirit's going to show up in and through your actions and take a people for his name. Because the story, who's the main character again? And I think this is true, the day of visitation, because he tells us just a second later when he starts to get more precise about examples. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. We'll develop that later. We'll talk about that. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be 
one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respect and pure conduct. That it's actually in the way we live in the midst of opposition that people see the beauty of God. May Hillcrest more fully embody that. So I got three takeaways for us. First, I encourage you, reflect this week. Talk with your spouse. Talk with someone in your life. What competes for your affections for God? I listed three categories. I'm guessing not all of those hit us equally the same. But what in your life might compete for your affection that you might more fully replace that affection with something greater, namely this joy in Jesus and a pursuit of him? Whether that's a fight against momentary pleasure, a fight against wrestling with the stuff in this life that matters most, or or wrestling with achievement and seeking value in what we do. Reflect this week on what competes for your affections for God. Second, what, what might God be inviting you into? With whom might he be placing you where you get to demonstrate your good deeds and this beautiful life? Is there a friend who needs forgiveness? And you know they're not coming first. Not, 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 and I'm couching this. Don't hear me say that people who are being abused should step back into an abuser's life, right? Don't hear that. So there's a caveat. But is there someone in your life where you need to step in and demonstrate forgiveness? Though you know you might have already been the one being slandered. To mend a broken relationship. What might it look like for you to take one more step towards that person as a demonstration of demonstrating the beauty of God through your good deeds? Or to an issue where bitterness and vengeance needs to be put away? David, you don't know how they hurt me. You don't know how they've slandered me. They potentially called me every name in this book. What would it look like that God might be inviting you into in terms of that relationship where you would demonstrate good deeds? And then now as we take communion, Jack will lead us in time of communion. May we live with an increased joy in Jesus. So I have a question for you. Have you? Have you put your hope in this, Jesus? Have you pursued recklessly abandonment towards living for you? If you haven't, before taking communion, I don't think, it, I don't think there's any time better than now than to say, Jesus, I want you as a primary person in my life. I want you sitting on the throne of my heart. I want to I forgo all these other temporary pleasures that are fighting and battling and waging war against my soul, and I want you and you alone. And if you have, if that already is the cry of your heart, as we take communion, I hope you get to reflect on maybe that first one. What are the things that still in this process of becoming more like Christ for the sake of the world that God is working on you? Pray with me. God, you're so good. Thank you for who you are, what you're doing in our world, our life, our community. May we find increasing significance in you. And may we continue to anchor our lives to this this sacrifice that you've paid. Through your one life, we have been made new. Thank you, Jesus, for your glory we pray. Amen.